Many times I like to begin with a pastoral concern that I have. And if you wonder why I usually begin my sermons with questions, it's because these are questions that come up during the week. These are questions that people have, and these are issues that everyone deals with. One of the things I want to address is something I've heard probably more than any other complaint from people in the body. And this is the complaint. Pay attention and let me know if these words have ever come off of your lips. I can't do blank like blank does. Anybody? I can't teach like you do. I can't pray like so-and-so does. I can't sing like Cherie does. I can't understand like other people do. Anyone? Anyone struggle with comparing yourself to others? Anyone struggle with thinking, that's just for professional Christians. I can't do that. Because believe it or not, as a young Christian, I had those same concerns. I saw pastors stand up in front of people and memorize scripture and speak. And I'm like, I could never do that. And that is a testament to the power of the Holy Spirit and the work in the maturity of believers. Uh, But one of my old pastors used to say all the time that comparison is the enemy of contentment. Let me say that again. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. And what that means is when we look at each other and we say, I'm not like them, it leads to one of two things. It It leads to me thinking higher of myself and less of them. Or higher of them and less of myself. And then comparison breeds this ugly discontentment within us. Am I the only one who struggles with that? Anybody else struggle with looking at other people and constantly comparing yourself to them? How often do we look at how God uses someone else and we're jealous of them? How often we look at how God calls someone and, get, and wonder why I don't have a testimony like them, so I'm not important. How many times we look at what God is doing in someone else's life and we feel neglected? We feel less important. How many times we look at what God is doing in someone else's life and they're not as far along as you think they should be, so you feel arrogant? Just me? In our Bible study this week, the book of Romans, we're dealing in chapter 7 with Paul's personal side. Paul is, is dealing with the temptation of his own sin. The sin we spent so much time talking about is covening or covetousness. And if you don't know what that word means, it, it just means kind of jealousy, where you are paying attention to someone else more than you're paying attention to yourself. You are coveting your neighbor's house, your neighbor's goods, your neighbor's wife. We live in a covetous culture, Right? Every marketing ad is telling us that you won't be happy until you get this. And the people who are really happy are the people who drive this car or wear these clothes or look this way. And that breeds discontentment. And Paul talks about that sin above all others. And we were having this discussion. We realized that the sin of coveting is underneath every other sin. Because in the very beginning, Adam and Eve were coveting God. Adam and Eve said they wanted to be like God. They wanted to know good and evil. And so desiring to be like God, they ate of the fruit. And their coveting brought them into rebellion and sin and separation from God. Coveting leads to adultery. Coveting leads to stealing. Coveting leads to lying. You want other people to think something of you that is not true. And so you lie. And coveting drives a lot of other things in our lives. And we tend to only think, when we read the Ten Commandments, the the tenth is about coveting, we only think about stuff. Well, I'm only coveting their stuff. But as believers, we can covet gifts. 
We can cover, covet what someone else does better than us and think that we're less important because God made them differently. And we can tend to make discipleship and growing in Christ something that is selfish. And something that is only about who we are and not what Jesus is doing in them. The real question we have to ask ourselves is, are we able to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of others and how God has made others? Or are we so focused on ourselves that we can't celebrate the diversity in which God has made people and which God calls people? Because Jesus knows our hearts and Jesus deals with us exactly where we are because he made us. Our maker, our creator, and our savior knows our innermost thoughts. And when he calls his disciples, he knows them and he calls them particularly. Because he knows how to reach the arrogant and the immature and the scared. He knows exactly what words to say. When we realize how much work that Jesus does in calling people and growing people, it takes a lot of pressure off of us. And so this morning, as we study Jesus, we have a lot to learn from him and how he calls these disciples. Because he knows exactly how to talk to each person. Philip is a very simple guy. We're going to look at Philip and Nathaniel this morning. Philip is a simple guy. Regular blue-collar guy. And if you read through the rest of John, you read through the gospel accounts, things aren't always clear to Philip. He asks a lot of questions in which Jesus kind of gives him almost sarcastic answers because Philip's uh, questions are so elementary. And many of you feel like that. Well, I'm I'm just always asking simple questions. How come I can't get past the basic? But Jesus, we'll see how Jesus addresses him. To the skeptic, which is Nathaniel. Nathaniel has to have a reason for everything. Nathaniel is questioning the very witness that Philip gives him. And to the skeptic, he gives evidence. But we see many other examples of how Jesus dealt with people. Uh, For the broken, he gives them comfort and he gives them hope and assurance. And for the arrogant, Like me, he humbles us and he breaks our will and brings us to our knees. So this morning we're going to look at the simple and the skeptic. And I think it's important for us that we remember that when we deal with people who are different than us, we remember that it's Jesus who's doing the work. I think it's important to remember that because of how God has made you, he has not made you by accident, you can reach people that I can't. You can minister to people in a way that I can't. My gifts are used for a specific purpose. But in the body of Christ, as we talk about membership last week, the gifts are are different and we complement each other. We're going to kind of see some of that this morning. And each disciple is called differently. No two stories are alike because no two people are alike. And that should first and foremost encourage us. Because our story shouldn't be like anyone else's. Our Our story isn't meant to be compared to someone else's. Jesus knows us, and he calls us, and he grows us according to who we are. It should also amaze us, because God is so big, and his plan is so perfect that it is particular for each person. And he reaches them exactly where they need to be at the moment. And more than anything, it should humble us, because God chooses to use broken unassuming people like us and these apostles. And we're going to get into them in just a moment. So last week, we looked at the calling of John and Peter. John, who wrote this gospel, and and Peter, who was kind of the rock and uh, pillar of the early church. Could not be more different. 
John is the apostle that, that Jesus loved. Had this intimate, close relationship with Jesus. And he would sit next to him. And he speaks about him in such an affectionate way. And Peter is brash and he shoots his mouth off and he gets himself into trouble. And Jesus works particularly in each one of them exactly how they need to hear the message. So let's look at our text this morning in John 1. So uh, if you can, there's there's pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. You're welcome to take one. But turn uh, to, to John chapter 1, the fourth gospel. Before we begin to read, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come before you today, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would quiet our minds, that you would allow us to focus on you and approach you for who you are, that you would allow us to recognize that you made us, you wove us together, and not one sinew was put in place by accident. Remind us who Jesus is. Not only very God, very man, but creator, sustainer, savior, Messiah, king, and he knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our fears. And only he calls and saves. I just pray this morning that your word would, would teach us, would guide us, would challenge us, would, would convict us. And help us to see more, more clearly your work of redeeming people, bringing home lost sheep to the fold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at our text in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. Remember, uh, we're in this successive week, the first week of Jesus' ministry. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wow. Got a lot to cover. Uh, But I want you to see this interplay here, this great dialogue. There's a lot that we can learn. Do you kind of get a sense like like you're there? Can you picture this this conversation going on between Jesus and and Philip and then Nathaniel and and then how Jesus responds? Uh, The first thing we need to see here in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So Galilee was kind of, it was a region, kind of like Seminole County, um, and it had a lot of small cities in it. So uh, Galilee is in the the, uh, northern part of of Israel. Uh, It was an important trade route that have all these very small cities. 
And so uh, these small working class villages like, like Nazareth, like Bethsaida, like Cana, where Nathaniel are, are from, uh, were, were very small working class. They, they didn't have a, a great reputation. But Jesus kind of goes into the countryside and goes from, from, from village to village. And so he's, he is moving away from Nazareth and he's going out into the region of Galilee. And so verse 43 says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. First thing we want to look at here is he found Philip. Um, one of the things that drives me nuts is when people say, well, did you find God? Did you find Jesus? No, Jesus wasn't lost. You were. Jesus found me. And this is the same thing that happens to every believer. Jesus seeks out and saves that which was lost. And that was Philip. Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly who he was going after. The shepherd seeks out the sheep. It is not the other way around. So this is important to understand because if it is up to us to seek out Jesus, that is a lot of pressure. But if the pressure is, is, is on him, there's a lot of peace knowing how much he cares for us and to the great degree in which he seeks us out. And he said to Philip, follow me. This is always the command. Whenever Jesus approaches a disciple, it's follow me. This in the Greek present tense doesn't mean just follow me once. It's, it's continuous. It's follow now and keep following. It's this continuous act of following after. And this, even though we can just read right past this, tells us a lot about Philip. Remember, we said that Philip was the simple guy. Because Jesus says, follow me. Are you ready? Philip's like, yep, I'm coming. That was it. That was all Philip needed. He didn't need any, he didn't need any, um, any, any convincing. He didn't need to be persuaded. He didn't need his arm twisted. And that's the beautiful thing is that Jesus knows who he needs to say, follow me to. And the one who he needs to press in a little bit like Nathaniel, those of us who are more uh, critical and, uh, and uh, stubborn. But uh, Philip has this genius response. He just follows. Uh, and sometimes we'll just gloss over these little details, but it's helpful when we look at that. It tells you a little bit about him. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the Jewish education system, um, because this seems foreign to us. and We don't really understand the cultural context, but it's important to know what happened in those days. Because in those days, um, every child at the age of five would go to kind of a primary school and they would memorize the, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. They would memorize it, every word of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, starting at five years old. Make you feel insecure yet? Um, and those who did really well by the age of like seven or eight would probably get called on to a secondary school where they would begin uh, to learn other prayers and probably memorize most of, if not the entire Old Testament. And those who did really well at that, they would get kind of handpicked and selected by a rabbi who would mentor them and disciple them and grow them in the faith. So this is a very elite process. This is uh, not for everyone. And so the fact that these teenage boys are um, back in their own town and they're, they're, they're back to fishing means they were not the cream of the crop. No rabbi selected them. One of the rabbi's favorite teaching tools, they, they, they would say, come and see. If you have a question, if 
if, if you didn't know the answer, they would say, they would essentially say, let me show you. And they would do a lot of teaching while they, while they walked. And so if the disciples had an important question, the, the rabbi would say, come and see. Come and walk with me. As we walk, let me, let me show you. And if they thought the student was worthy, they would say, follow me. And so when the rabbi said, follow me to the student, it didn't just mean learn what, what I want you to learn. It means follow me to be like me. Not just a transfer of information, but actually to mirror my character. Actually become who I am. Become a teacher and a discipler yourself. So when Jesus tells Philip and Andrew and Peter and John and Nathaniel to follow me and us, and he says, follow me. He's saying not just to learn what I know, but to be like I am. To be a discipler, to multiply disciples after yourself. This was a high calling. And so when Philip heard this, he was probably rejected in the synagogue, was probably not brought into this higher education. When this rabbi, this teacher, says, follow me, Philip jumped at the opportunity. He didn't have to think twice. And so Philip's response is great. He goes and he finds Nathaniel. That's what every good friend does, right? I found the teacher. I found the teacher. And so he goes, and the first thing he does is finds his friend Nathaniel. That's what good friends do. That's how the church multiplies. That's how the church has always multiplied for 2,000 years. People meet Jesus, and then they bring their friends along. Uh, one of the things I was doing this week is uh, cleaning and reorganizing the church. I went through some of the old files. And I looked at a job description for a pastor for uh, 30 years ago now. Um, and I read what they had for job description. And it made me sad, to be honest with you. Um, it said one of the job descriptions of a pastor is to seek out and bring in new members of the church. What the church has done is basically said that all of the work of the church is done by one person. Throughout the, the, the decades, they've, they've taken the work away from the disciples, away from the followers, and put it in the hands of one person. I read that. I said, I wouldn't take that job. If it was up to me to do everything, to bring in every member, to spread the word, count me out. The whole reason I got into ministry in the first place is because I wanted to equip the saints for ministry and encourage you and let you know that even if you are a Philip, you can call Nathaniel and you can call others. And that's how the church has always grown. Philip uh, approaches Nathaniel and says, we have found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. They found the Messiah. And this was a boy who went to his primary school. He knew the law. He knew Moses. He knew the prophets. Maybe even went to the secondary school. We found him, the Messiah, the promised anointed one of God. We spent a lot of time on that last week. I wish we could spend more time here, but we can't. The message is on the website if you want to follow up and um, look at that. We found the Messiah, this simple man. And we believe the lie that only pastors can do this or only the elite special forces Christians can talk about Jesus to other people. Really? Andrew and Peter, James and John, these are teenagers. These are boys. That's why I'm so encouraged to be here and to be a part of this, this body. And I use people as an example sometimes, and I'm going to use one today. Terry, I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I'm going to. It's good, though. I appreciate Terry so much because when I met Terry, he had so many good questions. 
And he knew he didn't have the answers to them. We've had many great conversations. And what's amazing about Terry is that he knows that he's still learning himself. But he tells people, I know where you can get answers. I don't know all these things, but I know that Jesus is changing my life. And I want you to to be in the place where my life has been changed. Just come and see. And it's such a beautiful way in which the Lord works. And many of you in here have been studying scriptures for years, are terrified to tell people about Jesus. And I love that Terry is so excited. Everyone who talks to him, he has to tell them. It's great. That's what the disciples of Christ should be known for. And the beautiful thing is there is strength in numbers. And you have to read this carefully. Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found the one whom Moses and the law and the prophets were. Again, we could just gloss over that. We. He didn't say I found him. We found him. Already, Philip is associating himself with the disciples. This is three days into Jesus' ministry, and already he has a brotherhood. We found him. There is no more I when you come to Christ. There is no more singularity in Christ. When it When we come to Christ, we come as a people. God is calling a people to himself. Jesus says, I want you to be one as me and the Father are one. And so our cry, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, is that we have found the Messiah. Come and join us. Because it's not our religion. We're not getting people to be our followers. We're coming together for people to follow Christ. So when people tell me they can follow Jesus apart from the other followers of Jesus. It's a complete contradiction in terms. How many people have heard or how many of you have said, my relationship is between me and God? Or I can, or my church is on the golf course or, or my church is in the woods or my church is at, is at home in front of the TV. No, it isn't. It's not possible. The word church means gathering. It means assembly. Unless the people of God are assembling in worship, unless his his word is read, unless his sacraments are administered, unless his praises are sung, it is not church. There is no singular church. There is no island Christian. You cannot be a church of one. It is impossible. If you love Christ, you will love his people. One of the first marks of a disciple is you associate with other disciples. You walk with them. Say, we have found the Messiah which all the law and all the prophets wrote. Verse 46. Now Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember, Nathanael's the skeptic. His first response is, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I don't know if this was just like some high school football rivalry or they just had like a bad reputation um, but when you're thinking about small, blue-collar towns, uh, you, you don't really give a, a lot of attention to them. You don't think good things can come out of this small place. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? These uncultured, uneducated, simple people in Galilee. question I think about all the time is that's how many people view Sanford. Can anything good come out of Sanford? This unassuming little city. The Lord has people here, though. And the gospel is needed here because the gospel is powerful in the places where there, where, there is, where there is poverty, where there is crime, where there is hurting, where there is a need for reconciliation, where there is a need for healing, where the gospel has power. The rich and powerful have no need for Christ. But the poor and the broken do. 
Many people have told me since I've been here that they were advised not to move to Sanford. Do not go to Sanford. When they were looking for houses, their realtor would say, yeah, we'll move. We'll look in Lake Mary. We'll look in Winter Park. And I have to be honest, I was guilty of that. When Cherie's mom moved here about a, a, a year before um, we even decided to, to, to move here, even, even came here to, to speak, I made fun of Sanford. I went to high school in Lake Mary. No one went to Sanford. And so I had all these jokes about Sanford for months and months and months. And of course, the Lord has a sense of humor. And the Lord knew what he was doing. Because as we were selling our house in Orlando, we were living with her mom so that we could be closer to church and that we could commute here often. And that's how the Lord works in these small, unassuming towns. And so you, if you don't think that God can work in a place like this, watch and see. Come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Philip's response is great. What does he say? Does he rebut him? Does he come back at his argument? He says, come and see. In his simplicity, there's a lot of wisdom. This is how you deal with a skeptic. Because skeptics are always going to have another question. They're always going to have another rebuttal. He gets right to the mission. Right to the witness. Come and see. Let me show you the Messiah. Many of you feel unqualified to respond to a skeptic. What about this Jesus? Did he really, did he really rise again? What about the Bible? Was it, uh, trans, was it lost in translation throughout the years? And they may say all these things. You feel unqualified to answer the questions of a skeptic? I did. For many years, I still do many times. But that's not our job. Don't answer the questions of the skeptic. Be like Philip. Come and see. Let me show you. I met Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And if the Spirit's working, the Spirit will work. And so it takes the pressure off of us. Uh, Philip, in his simplicity, is very wise. What the Bible says will speak for itself. And his great response is, come and see. Like those rabbis, come and see. Let me show you. Let me walk with you. Let me talk to you. This is insistent language. This is come on. See now. Don't wait. Don't delay. This is something that you have to see for yourself. And this is really important. I want you to get this. It is not how you come to Christ or when you come to Christ. It is that you come to Christ. Let me say that again because many people are concerned with how they came to Christ or when they came to Christ. But it is most important that you come to Christ. I don't care if you've been a Christian your whole life. You are blessed. I don't care if you were the thief on the cross. In the moment before you breathe your last and you say Messiah, you are blessed. And it is important for us to remember that God works in us in his way, in his timing, for his glory. And it doesn't always make sense to us and it doesn't have to. So then Philip said to him, come and see. Obviously, Nathanael follows. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Like last week, Jesus saw Peter. He knew him. He saw him. He saw right through him. He saw Nathanael and he knew him. And he said, behold, in whom in Isra- uh, there is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. As we saw with Nathaniel, there is no filter. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel shoots his mouth off. We all know people like this. But Jesus said it's a good thing because there's no deceit within him. This is fascinating because the word deceit, uh, you may remember in the King James translation, it says guile. 
Um, and so guile is actually a fishing term. It's a fishing word. It means to um, deceive and to entrap. That's what you fishermen out there do. You deceive and entrap these poor little fish. So when Jesus says that there is no guile in him, that means there's no ulterior motive in Nathaniel. He's speaking his mind. And he says that that's a good thing. He's actually applauding that. That he's not trying to entrap Jesus. He's not trying to trip him up. But he's really trying to get to the heart of the matter and he speaks his mind. And with speaking your mind, it's a good thing. Don't be afraid to speak your mind. We're way too sensitive in our culture. But with maturity comes wisdom and comes discernment. You don't always have to say everything that comes to your mind. You can have a little bit of caution. Some of you can employ that. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, here's the skeptic again, how do you know me? Can you just hear the sarcasm in it? How do you know me? Jesus' response, brilliant, perfect as always. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. His mind is just blown in that moment. His whole world stops. Imagine someone comes up to me and says, I know what you were doing hours ago. And I saw you. I saw where you were sitting. I saw you under that fig tree. And in that culture, the, the fig tree were, were, were very prized because they used fig for, the, uh, for food. They used the leaves. But because it had this great canopy that was, that was kind of close to the ground. So in the heat of the day, they would sit under the, the, the fig tree. And it was used for shade and for protection. It was also a favorite place for prayer and to read the scriptures. So my mind starts to wonder, and I just wonder, was Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree inquiring of, of God? And obviously I don't want to put that into the text. But Jesus knew that he was under the fig tree and he knew his thoughts. I saw you. He gave details no one else could ever know. The foreknowledge of Jesus just amazed Nathaniel. And Philip's witness was confirmed. The skeptic needed evidence and he got it. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's what Jesus does. He sees you. He searches you. The deepest realms of your mind and your soul. Everything and everyone is uncovered before him. He reads your mail. He knows your thoughts. That should scare the hell out of you, literally. To know that every slip that I have, every thought that I have, everything that I do, he knows. And when he seeks you out, he knows your sins. He knows your brokenness and he cares for you anyway. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him as he should. Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is another young man who knew his Old Testament. As we talked about last week, Psalm 2. The Messiah is both the son of God and the king of Israel. So parents, this is an encouragement. That when you bring your child up in the scriptures... That you raise them up in the way of the Lord. They will not depart from it when they are older. These are children who knew the scriptures. And he responded as he should. Because only the Messiah, only the King of Israel, the Son of God, could see me when I was sitting under the tree and no one was around. The Messiah must be the Son of God and the King of Israel. This points to his humanity. He must be from the line of David. 
but he is a special anointing from God. They understood the king, but like we mentioned a few weeks ago about the lamb, they were yet to understand his sacrificial nature. That will come up later. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So many people read the Bible as if Jesus never broke his stride, like he always had the same approach. This is sarcasm, people. I told you this, so now you believe? Jesus says that you, I told you you're under the fig tree, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm just getting started. Watch me. This is amazing about Christ, is that he knows you. He knows you under the tree, and he shows you amazing things. There were many more that they were going to see. They were going to see miracles, and they were going to see prayers answered, and they were going to hear teaching like they had never heard before. So it makes me think about those who saw him teach, who saw the miracles, who heard him, who saw lives transformed, and they still put him on the cross and crucified him. It's not about just knowing things. It's not about just seeing miracles. The most important things is that you see Christ for who he really is. This is what's important. This is what Philip did. This is what Nathaniel did. They didn't understand everything, but they saw him as the Messiah. They worshiped him as Lord. They came before him. Because you can hear the teaching. You can see the miracles. You can see it happen right in front of you. And so said, no. I prefer to be God in my own eyes. I prefer hell over repenting and turning to you. And that is what most of Israel did in responding to Jesus' teaching. This is why this is so amazing how he works in these first few disciples. So Jesus goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, the, The word truly here is our word, amen. 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 Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, John 25 times alone in John. Amen. Amen. Whenever he repeats himself, it is for emphasis and it is with authority. Truly, truly. Let it be. Let it be. So it is. So it is. This is the voice of God speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you with authority, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We see a few times where the heavens are open in the New Testament. Jesus' baptism we saw a couple weeks ago. uh, The transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come. The ascension when he goes up to heaven. And when Stephen, the first martyr, is being stoned, the heavens open up. And he sees Jesus get off his throne and stand and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. But also, this is kind of harking back all the way to Genesis 28. Now, if you remember the story when you were a kid of Jacob's ladder, um, Jacob falls asleep and he has this dream and this vision of a ladder and angels descending and ascending back and forth from earth to heaven and from earth to heaven. So Jesus was speaking to young men who knew their Torah. They knew the book of Genesis. And he said, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is that ladder. Jesus is what connects heaven and earth. Jesus is what the angels are going back and forth for. All things heavenly, all things earthly come together in him. The Messiah fulfilled all the prophecies, as Philip said, but it was even way more than that. Christ is that connection between heaven and earth. And they will descend on the Son of Man. We talked about the Son of God for just a moment. That's The Son of God, get this straight, it's a little confusing. The Son of God is a a human term. 
It's applied toward the anointed king of Israel, but the son of man is actually a divine term. Because this is one of the the few terms that doesn't have any nationalistic connections. What does that mean? It means that the Jews were looking for this political king. They wanted him to overthrow Rome. And the Son of Man had none of those connections. The Son of Man comes out of Daniel chapter 7. If you know your Bibles, uh, turn there to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Quickly. Because this is important. The Son of Man. And I wish I had a whole week to talk about the Son of God and the Son of Man. But if you can't get there, I'm just going to read this quickly. So this is Daniel's vision. Hundreds of years before Jesus, I saw in the night visions and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like the son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus is calling on himself. This is addressing his divinity. The Son of God addresses his humanity. The Son of Man, the Son of Man, not a Son of Man, the Son of Man addresses his divinity. And it is actually fulfilled in Revelation chapter 1. If you can get there quickly, get there. If not, I'm going to jump right in and then we'll wrap up. Revelation chapter 1. Starting in verse 12. Now John has this vision. John wrote this gospel. John wrote the book of Revelation uh, some short time after he wrote the gospel. And so in the spirit, he sees this vision. I then turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he he had held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That is the Son of Man that John fell down and worshipped. The one who died and rose again. The prophet Daniel saw him hundreds of years before. John saw him in his kingdom coming. And the disciples met him on earth. The Son of Man is God. Emmanuel walked among us who had to die for the sins of those who would have spit in his face and put him on the cross if it was left up to them. The Son of Man, both man and God, came perfectly in one, Jesus Christ. And so when Philip and Nathaniel meet this man, they're not just meeting the Son of God, the future King of Israel, who would have dominion forever, but the Son of Man, who would come in power, with a sword and reconcile all things to himself. Son of God, son of man, fully divine, fully human. Heaven and earth meet in Christ. This is where God and man meet. And this is where reconciliation to God happens. And this is where the reconciliation of all things happen. 
Son of God and the Son of Man. And he chose these little knucklehead fishermen boys. And he chooses knuckleheads like us who can't even tie our own shoes sometimes. But he uses us to grow his kingdom and his church. And it is amazing that this is the beginning of his church. A simple young boy and a skeptic. And nothing has changed. Jesus has been growing his church ever since in the same way. The unlikely, the outcast, the broken, the hurting. He uses them to bring more and more disciples along. And he works in them. We expect him to do anything different in us. So just as we close, just an encouragement. Jesus knows you. He made you. You are not made by accident. And if you think that you can't be used for anything, you are saying that God made a mistake, and are you ready to make that claim? Be encouraged. He knows us, and he works in us how we are. And he uses us, even though we think we're unlikely to reach others. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, this is the first time you're hearing any of this. You are not here by accident. He knows you. He wove you and knit you together before the foundation of the earth. He knew the hairs on your head and the color of your eyes. You are not unimportant. You are not of less value than someone else because you can't do what they can. This message is is reconciliation for all the nations. It is the, the healing that sin and death severed in one man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, coming for the sins of those who would trust in him. And we are just broken people who have trusted in him and who walk with him and walk alongside each other to grow into the image of Christ because our rabbi said, follow me. We weren't good enough to make it out of secondary school. But he said, follow me, not just to know what I know, but to be like I am, to be holy as I am holy. And I would just challenge you and encourage you come and see the messiah follow him his kingdom is forever it will never be shaken let's pray (whistles) heavenly father thank you for your love for us that yet while we were still sinners you sent your son for us Someone would scarcely, would, would, would scarcely die for a good person. Maybe even a righteous person, but you sent your son to die for sinners. Could only be the son of God and the son of man who came together in Jesus Christ. Let us respond like Philip and say, yes, I will follow you. Let us be humbled in our arrogance like Nathaniel and worship the king. Because all of heaven and earth is rejoicing. All in heaven and earth come together in Christ Jesus. Let that be our call. Let that be our plea. Let us be people who boldly proclaim we have found the Messiah. He has come to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.